Welcome to the Exploress. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. Next episode, we'll be diving back into the 1920s. There is a lot more to explore. Now, though, I've got something special for you. Author Elodie Harper is back, this time to discuss the thrilling conclusion of her epic trilogy about some of the women of ancient Rome. So, grab your scrappy sandals and sink into your favorite reading chair. Let's go traveling. But first, a shout-out to some of my patrons. My newest pirate queens, Anna and Kiana. My new lady presidents, Kyle and Notker. My warrior queens, Sarah. Two lovely Alexises, Amanda, Kate, Ika, June, Neven Sloan, and Samantha. My imperial empresses, Bridget, Faye and Whimsy Soapworks, Katie, Samara, and Teresa. And my lady pharaohs, Sophie, Laura, Kate, Kat, Cheryl, and the fabulous Courtney's. This show just would not be possible without the generous support of all my patrons. For just a few dollars a month, they get episodes early and completely ad-free, exclusive bonus episodes, discounts on merchandise, full interviews with guests, and more. To find out all about it, go to my website, theexploresspodcast.com. Hi, Elodie. Welcome back to the Exploress. Hey, Kate. It's so nice to be back. Oh, I'm so excited to have you here. I cannot wait to talk about The Temple of Fortuna, the third book in this incredible series, which I just devoured. I was just saying before we started recording that I just absolutely, I mean, I'm a huge fangirl of yours. I love the series. And I had really high expectations of this last book and you just completely knocked it out of the park. I stayed up way too late reading it. I was on the edge of my seat. Like it was, it's such a beautiful book. And I have been recommending this series to everyone I know. So I'm excited to talk to you about it. (laughs) Me too. It's it's really, I so enjoyed our last podcast. You know, it's, it's lovely to talk to you. Let's just start by pitching the series. So for anyone who hasn't read it yet, let's talk a little bit about the series. And I will start by saying, listeners, that Ellie and I will be talking a little bit about books one and two in this series. So there might be some spoilers. If you have not read the first two books, go back and listen to my episode, our interview from 2021. Listen to that. Read The Wolf Den read the house with the golden door and then come back to us and we will be waiting for you. (laughs) Putting that out there now because I there's stuff from the first two books I really want to talk to Elodie about. Okay, so let's just roughly recap this series leading up to this third book. What tell us a little bit about what what is the series about and what's happened so far? So the title, The Wolf Den, is actually from the Latin word lupana, which means both wolf den and brothel. And the first book is set in the actual lupana of Pompeii, which is a building that survives, um, you know, in, in extraordinary detail, actually. So the first book follows the fortunes of the main character, Amara, um, and the women um, that she works with in the brothel. And it's a story really about her quest for freedom, how to get out of the brothel, what routes are open to her, what she has to do to survive, how ruthless she has to be. Um, And, you know, my motive for writing the book was really about thinking about the texts, um, the archaeological sources, um, the evidence that we have of what the women's lives were like, because I feel like this particular group of, of women in Roman society, they were, you know, enslaved brothel workers, they were very um, stigmatized in their own time, they continue to be quite objectified in ours. And I wanted to focus on their lives rather than just the fact that, you know, they had to do sex work. So it's very much, the first book is very much a novel about Pompeii, about um, Amara's quest for survival and her relationships with the women. By the time we get to the house of the golden door, she's found her um, route up to the next rung on the ladder in that she found a wealthy patron. Um, and so that book is less about how she survives and more about what she does to choose to live. So she has more space to think about relationships, um, what she wants from life, um, which, you know, and in that book, I was able to explore through 
you know, Ovid's depiction of courtesans, Terence's depiction of courtesans, the actual frescoes in Pompeii, what they tell us about the life of a courtesan, which could be very glamorous, but also very precarious. So that's where she is in that book. And then, yes, by the time we get to the Temple in Fortuna, she's she's changed patron again. Um, she's in a very powerful position in Rome, but she also has her family now back in Pompeii. So that's where the Temple of Fortuna starts. So really, the series, it follows a main character a woman on kind of her quest to try and have agency in her life but it's it's also very much touching on multiple characters lives how they deal with um you know enslavement um male female relationships power dynamics or you know a lot of the stuff that people in the ancient world were faced with that I really wanted to explore Mm. Yeah. And we're going to talk about a few of those characters um, shortly, because I do think there's some other key characters that Amara spends time with in the brothel that are just, it's really interesting to see the route that their story took. So there's her pimp from the brothel. Felix, yeah, I can't believe I, I missed him out. Man, but... yeah. <laughs> it's like the entire narrative arc actually is this intense love-hate oh, rivalry, yeah. um, revenge drama going on between Amara and Felix, the man who owns her in the first book. Yeah. Yes, he's such an interesting, I mean, you just loathe him. It's he's very easy to loathe, but he's also a complex character with, yeah. a, you know, he had a difficult childhood himself. And um, yeah, really interesting character, Felix. And then you have Rufus in book two, who is her patron, who also I mean, look, a lot of the men, <laughs> I would say, in, this, in the series, we could call problem problematic, perhaps, yeah. uh, complicated. Um, and then you have, I mean, I loved in book two, you have Amara has a romantic relationship with someone who she really is very off limits to her. It's like a very taboo relationship, but it's really beautiful to see her and Philos fall in love and have to navigate. He's still yeah. enslaved. She is not, but she's still in a very precarious situation. She has a patron, but if she loses his favor, she could lose everything that she's gained. So I just, you know, book two is this incredible study in this woman who has found her freedom, but there's just still so much to lose. She's actually my personal favorite of the series. I just, I really loved that book a lot. I think you do such a good job of navigating the fact that this woman, I mean, she lost an incredibly, like her best friend in the brothel at the end of book one, she loses in a pretty dramatic and horrible way. And she's still grappling with that in book two and thinking about what does it mean that she's free? How does she stay free? How does she maintain her agency? Because she's in a relationship where she in many ways doesn't, she's playing a role. She's playing the role of a courtesan, yeah. this man who expects certain things from her. And if she loses his favor, she could lose everything. So I just think... Book two is so fraught in really, really interesting ways. So, okay, we get to the end of book two. She has a new patron who, definite improvement over the last patron, <laughs> but still still not the man she loves, so not ideal. Yeah. <laughs> so I was really interested to see with book three, we get out of Pompeii and the book starts in Rome. So she is really at the heart of it all, really at the heart of, of the empire. And I thought it was really interesting that you start the book with Amara going to visit the emperor's consort, a woman named Berenice, who is a real historical figure and has been serving essentially as informal empress. I'm interested to hear a little bit about why you chose to talk about Berenice and introduce us to this character, this this real woman who was a foreigner. She was not Roman, really. Um why did you choose to introduce us to this character, especially a woman who was on the eve of her exile? So I think, I mean, Berenice is a fascinating historical figure in her own right. She gets the tiniest cameo, really, in this book. There are certain parallels between Berenice and Amara in that both are, you know, highly intelligent women. I mean, Berenice was, was an extraordinarily intelligent woman, but a bit like... Um, Cleopatra, who she was sometimes compared to um, due to kind of the Roman xenophobia, you know, like a foreign, a foreign temptress type character. You know, Cleopatra also was this phenomenally intelligent ruler in her own right, as was Berenice. But Berenice became the consort of um, Titus during um, the wars, um, you know, and uh, the fall of Jerusalem. And 
you know, she adapts to essentially, you know, she she collaborates with the Romans in in, in every sense. Um, And they do seem to have had a very loving relationship. Titus does seem to have loved Berenice a great deal and have thought very highly of her. Um, And yet she was not considered a suitable consort for a Roman emperor. And so he banished her. Um, even though she was, you know, by all accounts, the love of his life. And I think, you know, she sort of brings up, therefore, questions about how even an emperor can't choose who their partner is. Um, In terms of if Titus can't choose to be with a person he loves, who can? But also for Berenice herself, you know, even when you're at your most powerful, I mean, the Temple of Fortuna, I mean, it's it, the whole book is kind of saturated with ideas and images of the Wheel of Fortune and, and just the idea of the goddess Fortuna and the, the role that chance plays in life. This idea that Berenice was right at the top and then, you know, everything changes. So there was, there was that. There was also the fact that she simply would have been in Rome at this key point when Amara is in Rome. Um, and, you know women would network with other women. And so it made sense to me just from a purely practical point of view that if Amara was networking at sort of the highest levels um, of Vespasian, the previous emperor who's recently died. So, you know, it would make sense that she would be embroiled in the Vespasian Titus camp as opposed to the Domitian camp, given the loyalty of her patron to Vespasian. So there were many reasons why Berenice was there. But I mean, essentially... You know, I wanted, and also the the Wolf Den trilogy has been very female dominated. And so I wanted to start with powerful women. So that's why it's the opening scene, um, that we don't start with Amara and Demetrius. Originally, I started the book with Amara and Demetrius in the first draft. And then I just thought, no, that's not how I want to start it. That's not kind of Amara's world. So that's what happened. And that makes complete sense to me because Amara has really reached the pinnacle of what it means to be a courtesan. Her patron Demetrius is very rich. He's very influential. He treats her, you know, he treats her quite well. They might not be in love, but they have a pretty good working relationship. She has more money and more freedom than she's ever had. But at the same time, she's still a courtesan and a kept woman. And as you said, her family is back in Pompeii. So she's feeling very torn between her loyalty to this man who's given her a lot. And also, I think in showing us the political situation from Amara's point of view, we see how precarious and political her situation is too. I think it really mirrors Amara's situation really in in interesting ways. I mean, I don't I don't want to give away. Something really interesting happens while she's in Rome that I don't want to give away, but it's it really helps to underscore how even a courtesan at the very highest levels can be a target and can be in danger, like that that her safety is never assured. Yes, I think for sure. It's great. I I just, I, I will not spoil it, but I want to talk a little bit about the courtesan system because I feel like through the course of this series, you've shown us the entire kind of run the gamut, um, the entire ladder of what it meant in ancient Rome to be a courtesan. Amara starts out kind of the lowest of the low. She's in a, she's she's enslaved and she's in a brothel and she has very very little agency. And then she ends up being freed, but she's still someone's girlfriend, full time girlfriend. Yeah. And then she kind it's, of it's continues like to move type up of that ladder in the second book rather than courtesan because courtesan implies. Probably a greater degree of agency. I mean, some women were freed in um, in, in ancient Rome specifically to be sort of sexual partners. Um, so it gave them greater status than being simply a slave that was sexually exploited. So they they have some kind of status, some implication of love, affection, and mutual mutual care. But equally, it's it's not the status of a wife. It's a kind of companion, concubine, you know, and and it's something that you owe to someone. You you, you legally owe them that service if you've been freed for that reason. Mm. So, you know, because all freed, all freed people had legal duties that they owed to the people who freed them. Um, you know, they, they would be often financially obliged to make a contribution. Um, they would sometimes be obliged to work for free 
you know, they would owe their loyalty, their lives, their time in all sorts of complex ways that a freeborn person wouldn't. Yeah. And I think that that's a really interesting and moving part of the series is you see women who some of them are technically free, but they all, it comes at a cost and it comes with strings. And there's so much fraught territory that Amara has to navigate in being kind of a kept woman in Rome, even even to be uh, the concubine of this man who is very powerful and very rich and seems to treat her well. So could could you tell me a little bit about what does it mean to kind of be at the top of the ladder as a concubine or as a courtesan? Like, how did you think about in crafting Amara's story? I mean, this is kind of as high as she's going to go in this particular position. How did you think about opening up her mindset to the reader and her, her worldview? So I think the sort of space that the courtesan inhabited is quite an interesting one in that in some respects, they were freed from the constraints that more respectful women might be obliged to live by, you know, they, they could have multiple lovers. Um, they, you know, the ones right at the top might have a degree of, of financial independence. Um, you know, they could be involved in, in, in politics. I mean, in some senses, I guess, similarities to elite aristocratic women in the degree of which they were mixing with powerful men potentially involved in political intrigue and yet they did not have the power or the status of elite aristocratic women I mean nothing like it they were still kind of very sexualized disposable um you know they could never you know it's just not possible for them to attain that level of respect and you know also Amara's patron Demetrius is an imperial freedman. And and this is a similar kind of status in a way in that imperial freedmen were phenomenally powerful politically, but socially they were not regarded as being, you know, it's it's the Roman class system, really. It's hard even to convey um, the stigma that surrounded being freed. Because we see, you know, freed people engaged in all sorts of sort of high politics and commerce and and money and wealth and all the rest of it. But it carried this lifelong stigma of having been enslaved. Um, And that's why when Amara is talking to another courtesan who's kind of um, mocking her about Demetrius's past and the implication that he too was obliged to um, give sexual favours when he was young. And there's always that implication with someone who used to be enslaved because sexual exploitation was so endemic, this assumption that you would have served your master or mistress in all possible senses. Um, So I do think, I mean, not just courtesans, I think this whole concept of of how the Romans viewed enslaved people and freed people is is so alien for us. Although it has some kind of echoes of the class system, it's really not the same. Uh, you know, it's not the same sort of snobbery. It's it's based on other ideas and on ideas of bodily integrity and all sorts of things, you know, because like a Roman citizen couldn't be subjected to capital punishment, um, you know, in the same way that a freed or an enslaved person could. You know, this this idea that you had been a person who didn't have agency over their own body was not seen as something for which you deserve compassion, but something that was that was shameful. Yeah, I think it is such an interesting issue, especially in ancient Rome, the idea of a freedman. Um, Demetrius has such an incredible amount of money and power, and yet he's there is this stigma around the fact that he was once enslaved, and you can't ever shake that. And Amara is very aware of that herself, that no matter how far she climbs and how much money she's able to save that she's always going to have to navigate. It's like she's dragging that stigma behind her always. And the precariousness as well. You know, she doesn't have a huge wealthy family network um, to fall back on, you know, which people at the top. I mean, obviously, this is a teeny, teeny percentage. You know, most Roman people, free or enslaved, live financially precarious lives. I think what it is is that, you know, courtesans were mixing at the very, very top but they weren't 
the very, very top, if that makes sense. So they're people who are moving in that world, but they're not fully of that world. And, you know, there's sort of multiple ways of looking at it. So Terence writes about courtesans in his in his plays quite revealingly, you know, about how they seem so powerful and glamorous and beautiful, but actually they might, you know, when you see them eating when they're on their own, they'll be stuffing down the food um, because actually they might be really hungry and not got much money. And one of his uh, courtesans uh, that Amara identifies with when she sees the play is is kind of saying, you know, you have such a short window of time to make your fortune. Um, you have to do everything you can to, to make money. So it's, yeah, the, the ones who were the most successful uh, and really from Roman standards, Demetrius is an extraordinarily generous patron. And I think if Amara had never met Philos, you know, she would have stuck to him like a limpet um, and not had any kind of um, any doubts or not have been torn in any way because he is offering for the times an extraordinarily good deal. You know, he treats her kindly enough and um, he financially takes care of her. And he's also an interesting man. I mean, I did really like Demetrius. He's quite cold fish in lots of ways. I might call him an emotionally unavailable man if we were talking in today. Yeah, I think that that suits indeed, yes. Um, (laughs) I I liked him and I wanted to make him someone who was fully aware of, you know, many different levels of his own identity. So the fact that he decorates his his extraordinary expensive villa with scenes from Aesop's fables, which is a very homely and kind of slave orientated set of stories. You know, fables were associated with enslaved people. Um, Those are the stories that they would tell. Uh, And so it's kind of like he's owning that aspect of his identity. He's getting in there first before anyone could, could mock him. I guess the opposite of like a Trimalchio and, the satyricon um, who's kind of overdoing it with his money to try and overcome the stigma of of having been enslaved. You know, we know that Demetrius's house outside of Rome is even more ostentatious, but in Rome he's careful not to overstep, you know, his status. Right. And another interesting male character that we get throughout the series is Pliny the Elder, he is such a key figure he's terrible but i love love plenty (laughs) i know well let's let's talk a little bit about that but he's terrible but we love him because i agree yes (laughs) he is such a key figure in amara's life he is responsible Mm -hmm. for freeing her she feels a huge amount of loyalty and love for him because of everything he's done but also you know as you say he has his limitations when it comes to uh, being a patron and what he's willing to do or not do for Amara and the way he views her. So I just feel like Pliny Mm. is, I mean, I'm interested to hear you talk a little bit about Pliny because he is a real life figure. He features in all the books. I'm curious to know why you decided to include him, but also was hoping you talk a little bit about what you think he tells us about, especially a male Roman citizen's attitudes about slaves and people who were once slaves and especially women so i think um pliny is quite an unusual roman um he you know by all accounts of his nephew he was pretty eccentric man um just the sheer facts of his life point to a certain eccentricity his authorial voice is quite eccentric in the natural history it's one of the reasons i was so drawn to the character so I guess, you know, on the kind of plus points of, of Pliny, he is this man of an insatiable curiosity about people, things, places, nature. I mean, he's just, there is nothing in the world that does not interest him. So that includes women, that includes enslaved people. You know, he is on a superficial level interested in 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 everyone and everything but his interest still comes with its limitations because he, you know, particularly in the first book, um, he's fond of Amara and he finds her really interesting, but he's absolutely incapable of empathizing with her. He just can't. Um, so he's not a bad man, like 
in inverted commas, like some of the other characters, he wishes her no ill, but he can't really comprehend her her suffering, or nor does he feel responsible for it. Um, and yes, he does come good for Amara, but it's almost accidental. It's certainly not his main intention. It's he does it to solve an issue for another man as much as he does it for Amara. So they have this strange relationship where, because the books are written from Amara's point of view, we see Amara through, uh, we see plenty through Amara's eyes, and she absolutely idolizes him. She adores him. But for me, as the writer, I don't idolize him. Um, and I think he's profoundly flawed, both in how he deals with Amara, you know, the way that he expects service from her reading. You know, it's it's kind of endearing and as services go, you know, expecting her to read for hours and hours. It's not like he's expecting sexual services <laughs> or um, for her to scrub his floor, but it's still an act of service. Um, she's not ever there at his parties fully as a guest in her own right she is a freed woman who who owes a certain amount of entertaining or service to the to the free people so there's that aspect which makes him very much of his time um but in terms of creating the character so he's a key character in all three books we actually don't have masses of of material on sort of Pliny's personal life who he was as an individual what we do have is very vivid but it's still not masses. And, you know, what we do have is his nephew, Pliny the Younger's account of the eruption. And obviously I cover all of Pliny the Elder's involvement in the rescue mission in, in, in book three. But I took aspects of his character that are revealed in that, in that time in his life and then translated them into the first book. So, you know, on the plus side, he's someone who was immensely brave, who, who demonstrated this extraordinary curiosity about the natural world, even when it was at great personal risk who also, you know, had a, a, a deep sense of moral responsibility to, to, to launch a humanitarian effort. So these are all the positives about him. On the negative side, you know, he's just deeply eccentric how um, he, he responds to the disaster as well, you know, insisting on behaving normally, having a bath, making everyone have dinner. Um, it's, he's, he's, you know, snoring his way through some of the eruption. He's, He's quite an oblivious man. He's he's very hyper-focused. He's got his special interests, shall we say. <laughs> yes, very self-absorbed for sure. Deeply self-absorbed, but not talking about himself. That was, he's he's self-absorbed in his obsessions. So he's, he's an obsessive personality. And this is very much based on what we know of him. So his nephew wrote of him, um, you know, that he never stopped either reading or being read to or taking notes or obsessing over his writing. And my God, he was, you know, an incredibly um, busy statesman and in the army, and he wrote a phenomenal amount of books. So he was every second of the day engaged in, in working. He was an absolute workaholic. And his nephew says that, you know, the only time he took a pause was for his bath. And he says, and by his bath, I mean the actual immersion. So, you know, you've kind of got this image of plenty people reading to him at the side of the bath, you know, as, and the only time they stop is when he's underwater. I mean, it's just, yeah. Oh, yes, I, you know. He's he's a really interesting character to see brought to life in fiction because he is, as you say, he's very eccentric and just an interesting man. And yes, Amara certainly sees him through rose-colored glasses. Yeah, and he's, you know, of all the men she comes across, in many ways he is, although he doesn't see her fully as a person, you know, he doesn't sexualize her. He's What he wants from her is different from what other men want from her. I think that's quite a key issue. You know, he's not just wanting more of the same of what's always been demanded of her. So, you know, reading to him and talking to him about the things that he's interested in is, you know, it's implying more about his sense of her worth as well. You know, what he values her for, what she's useful to him for is 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 more aligned to who she is as a person. Yes. And I think being seen as at least in some ways, being seen as an intellectual is it's important yeah. to Amara to be able to meet with someone intellectually and talk to him about matters of the mind rather than, as you say, most of the men throughout the series sexualize her and want 
you know, want her body as much as anything else. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, he is flawed as well. So. Yeah. But I do. I I have to say, I am. Yeah. I loved him. And I think both he and Demetrius show us in many ways, the best of Roman society in terms of how one might treat someone who had been enslaved, someone who is in service to them. I mean, they're both men who, you know, treat Amara well in some ways and in other ways it's you know it's still a fraught relationship but yeah, it's interesting a, she's not an equal You're right yeah right she's not an equal but they are benign <laughs> benign patrons as opposed to you know very um manipulative oppressive or cruel ones let's take a quick break to hear about another excellent book you'll definitely want to add to your shelves Hi, I'm Dr. Rad. And I'm Dr. G. And together we are the Partial Historians. We host an ancient Roman history podcast. And we're really thrilled to announce that we've also just published our first book together. That's right. If you want to hear all about the Roman monarchy, the very first era of Rome, this is the place to look. Dr. G, do you enjoy taking strolls through the wood with a goddess? I certainly do. Do you enjoy running over your relatives when you decide to finally take power for yourself? (laughs) You know it. If you enjoy these sorts of stories, then you're going to love the Roman kings and the regal period. So make sure you pick up a copy of our book, Rex, the Seven Kings of Rome. Rex, the Seven Kings of Rome can be found online as an ebook through our Gumroad store, The Partial Historians. It can also be found on Amazon Kindle. And if you're interested in a very physical copy of the book and you happen to be based in Australia... It is also available in Abbey's Bookstore in Sydney. Visit partialhistorians.com and you can find all the details about how to purchase the book there. And now it's back to the Explorers. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Britannica. We have to talk about Britannica. Uh, Definitely (laughs) such an amazing character. So I think it was about at the end of book two that we see her training to become a gladiator a female gladiator and then in book three we actually get to see her being a gladiator and we get to see her fight which was deeply deeply satisfying i have to say so can you (laughs) tell us a little bit about my favorite oh gosh it was so satisfying i loved it um and i loved being able to see a female gladiator because we do know or we have some hints that there were some female gladiators in ancient Rome. So there can you, definitely were right. female gladiators. So can you yeah. tell us a little bit more mm. about that, the kind of research you yeah. did and what you found about specifically about gladiator culture, but female female gladiators? So I think, you know, I I have to say, you know, I romanticized Britannica's life as a gladiator. Um it would have been you know, she's very lucky to have Stephanus, a Lannister who uh, adores her and um, supports her so much. You know, there's no question I have romanticised the life of a gladiator in in, in the series. Ultimately, it's fiction. Um, And, uh, you know, so I should make that little disclaimer because the relationship that, you know, the highly respectful relationship that Britannica has with her Lannister, Stephanus, is you know, potentially not the relationship all gladiators would would have. Um, But what we know about female gladiators, they were nothing like as common as male gladiators. Uh, You know, they they were an anomaly. They were often a novelty act. So Domitian, for instance, um, you know, would have women fight against people with dwarfism. Um, You know, they would sometimes be fights... At times, like the Floralia, you know, scantily dressed. So they, they, there was that kind of slightly titillating novelty aspect. There was also more serious fighting that went on. So in Ostia, there are records of, um, you know, women putting each other to the sword in gladiator fights, um, which is not a novelty. You know, they were really fighting. We've also got in modern day Turkey, a Roman relief showing two women gladiators fighting. And again, it's not presented as a novelty at all. Um, it's They've got the sort of stage names, Achillea and um, Amazonia. 
and it's recording an actual fight between two actual gladiators, so far as we know. Um, in terms of the type of style of fighting that I had Britannica take on, so she's she's a, she's a net man, um, which was a slightly feminized role anyway for gladiators, um, you know, because they were they they were in like a padded tunic and they had like a long trident. So it wasn't seen as such a manly role. So it would be a more likely role for a woman to take on anyway, because it was already seen as quite effeminate. And yeah, I mean, as I say, I have romanticized um, Britannica's life as a gladiator um, to a degree, but they were these very, it was a really strange life of these, these close knit communities, many, as I reflect in the book, are ex-convicts or they were enslaved. You know, some people did choose to become gladiators because, you know, there was the fame as well, if you did well. You know, the fame, the adulation. Uh, after a certain number of fights, you might, like Stephanus, the, the Lannister in the book, you know, you could get your freedom. Um, so it's... And there were also laws preventing highborn people and even highborn women from becoming gladiators. And the fact that these laws even existed suggests that some people might have had a go. So I guess always, you know, very, it, it was a very dangerous job. Uh, it, the conditions could be quite harsh. I mean, it kind of depended where you were a gladiator, but, you know, you might be treated as more or less enslaved. You might have greater freedom. Um but yeah, it was this very strange life of intense danger, but also glamour um, and adulation. And although it was incredibly dangerous, you know, it was expensive to kill gladiators. So it wasn't like they were just slaughtering people willy nilly. They had convicts. I mean, the Romans were awful. I mean, the whole idea of watching people killing each other for, for laughs is is just disgusting, to be honest. But um you know, they had beast hunts and stuff like that in which convicted prisoners whose lives were absolutely cheap and had to die anyway would would be slaughtered. So so the gladiators themselves, although they, they were fighting in the arena of death, they were the least expendable of the human fighters. So, yeah. Um, and for Britannica, who comes from, you know, um, a culture where she was a fighter and that was part of her identity in spite of being a woman this is as close as she gets to you know some sense of of her own identity I think she embraces what it means to be a gladiator mm. and I think one of the things that makes this scene in which we see her fight so satisfying is that Britannica, from the moment we meet her, has a lot of rage. She's been, you know, taken, she's been enslaved. Mm -hmm. She's a warrior who's been enslaved and taken away from her home and her her family and her culture and put into this. I mean, she just fights it every step of the way and she's very angry. So it's just yeah. wonderful to get to see her. I mean, it's brutal, but it's also kind of amazing to be able to see her fighting aback. Yeah, it's an expression of her rage and her sense of herself and her pride, you know, because in The Wolf Den, Britannica is in many ways the most harrowing character because she does fight back and so there's no veneer of, of consent as to what goes on in the brothel where Britannica's concerned. This is, you know, it's just anguish and rage um, and humiliation and all the rest and she does constantly fight back. Um, at huge sort of cost to her psyche, really. And so it was, Britannica is in some ways the least realistic character in the books. And she's also, I think, not coincidentally, probably the most popular. She's the one people write to me and say, I love Britannica because she's who we'd all like to be. And that's what Amara feels when she sees her fighting. You know, it's extremely rare that people have the courage to be quite that resistant to oppression it's 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 unusual it doesn't happen often that people do that so Britannica is is the most unusual character in the books um and also you know when I wrote that scene and it was a scene that I had wanted to write for a very long time uh, it's probably one of my favorite scenes in the whole trilogy the Temple of Fortuna is the most dramatic out of the three books and it's got the most kind of set pieces I would say um but, you know, women fighters were seen as novelties, but I wanted to see that fight from the point of view, you know, Amara's sitting with the women, men and women sat differently in 
in the in the arena. It's sat in different places. The women were at the upper levels, and really, you know, for for men seeing a woman fighting with a sword might have some sort of titillating or sexual content, but for the women to see a woman like that asserting her power, I thought that might have had a different impact. They might have felt differently about it. I mean, sure, some might have thought, oh, wow, you know, shameful woman, but maybe others got a vicarious sense of agency in watching it. Yeah, you can only imagine that that, that, must, that must have been true. And I think that's what makes, I mean, this series is really powerful for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that you you imagine the ancient world through the eyes of women and especially women who have been exploited, women who have been enslaved, women, you know, it's a perspective we don't see a lot either in actual, you know, extant sort of historical sources that we have, and we don't see it a lot in fiction. So it is satisfying and interesting to be able to, you know, what might it have been like for women to be watching a woman in the arena? Yeah, because because the perspectives that we're given on the ancient world are so kind of relentlessly male and generally, you know, elite. So it is it is life seen through one very specific perspective. And there were other perspectives and we get sort of fragments of them in graffiti or, you know, the odd letter or, you know, in some in some literature, you know, you get these kind of snippets and you can often read between the lines and imagine what it might have felt like from from the other the other side but i think you know one of the the balancing acts in writing ancient world fiction from the point of view of characters whose perspectives we don't have so much of is that you want to be true to that world to the sort of psychological constraints that they would have faced so they wouldn't have had feminism they wouldn't have had you know notions of 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 emancipation as as a individual emancipation, yes, you yourself personally don't wish to be enslaved. A wider sense that there should be no slavery—that is not something that was that was a school of thought in the ancient world. They didn't have access to that type of kind of world-smashing ideology. That just—it wasn't there. But at the same time, we know that people resisted in individual ways, and they wanted more for themselves. And so, I guess the starting point is: okay, we have this quite rigid psychological plane in which characters have to inhabit because that is what they would have inhabited at the time. But within that, we know also from human nature, everyone's the hero of their own story. You know, you unavoidably only have your own perspective on life. And, you know, the Romans were aware of of this kind of undercurrent perspective that they were slightly fearful of, the elite Romans. I mean, you know, this this the saying that you have as many enemies as you have slaves. They, they were aware that people didn't enjoy this, um, you know, and some of the writing about women, you know, juveniles' anxiety about women trying to seize power. And when you look at kind of elite women who did take power and did wield power, you know, the, the deep unease over this, because ultimately all human beings, men, women, freed, enslaved, you know, they have the same basic desires for love, respect, freedom, you know, over their own lives. This 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 remains constant. Mm. All right. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, we said that there would be no spoilers, but I think it's safe to say that in this <laughs> book, we do get to see the eruption of Vesuvius, which is, as you say, like incredibly dramatic because of course, um, and we get to see Amara go through this incredibly harrowing experience. And it it just reads as like, the scenes in which we see the eruption and the aftermath are so visceral and they're so like, I just couldn't put the book down. I could not, I stayed up very late because I could not put it down. And I'm curious to know what sorts of research you did to be able to bring that disaster to life on the page. So I got quite hung up initially about writing the volcano. So my primary, my primary source was Pliny the Younger's letters because that's one of the only contemporary, um, sources we have and then uh, which is which is extraordinary <laughs> as well you know it's a lot a lot of detail in a very um you know very human way I think that's what's so astonishing about Pliny the Younger's account is you know he's not a volcanologist he's he's not able to tell us about the you know why volcanoes erupt or any of that stuff or, or what the you know 
the exact time frame. But what he describes is what it felt like to be caught up in the middle of it. Um, you know, the, all the small details, like the fact that people put pillows on their heads to protect themselves from debris, or they, even though it was the middle of the day, it was so dark, they had to take lamps out to see where they were going. Um, so that was that was my main source. I then did, you know, obviously read about volcanoes and in particular about Vesuvius and the, the sort of time span and the fact that, you know, the archaeological evidence suggests that there were earthquakes at the same time. Um, but ultimately, I came to a point where I just had to stop because Amara would not have known any of these things, you know, and what I wanted to capture in this book was not like the definitive volcano book, this is exactly what happened when Vesuvius erupted, this was the time frame, this was the type of pyroclastic flow. What I was trying to capture is what it might have felt to have been caught up in it you know, the absolute confusion, the not knowing what was happening, the, the fact that everything is very disjointed and bewildering and dark um, and smothering. So, and the exhaustion. So that was really, in the end, my approach to the eruption of Vesuvius, as to, to see it almost as, you know, when you tell a well-known event of history, it can become too familiar and you can have too much knowledge. And so I almost wanted to approach it certainly in terms of the writing, as from the point of view of someone who had absolutely no understanding of what was going on. Um, I also, it was really important to me that, you know, the volcano happens about halfway to two thirds of the way through the book. And I wanted to look at the aftermath because I don't think this is written about, you know, certainly in fiction, anything like as much. Um, and it, it was, you know, it is fascinating for what it tells us about the Romans. There was this massive relief effort. The emperor was involved. Uh, you know, it was it was a huge humanitarian crisis um, and how people rebuilt their lives, where they rebuilt, rebuilt them, you know, how they coped. This was something that I really wanted to look at in detail as well. Mm. Yeah, I thought that was so interesting because, as you say, it's it's really not anything I've read about, like what actually happened to all of these people who escaped after Vesuvius, what kinds of lives did they build and what did the rest of the Roman Empire do to try to relieve those survivors? It was really, really interesting to read about that. Thank you. I mean, and I you know, I don't, <laughs> we can't talk too much about it. There are many things I want to say about what happens at the end of the book, but I can't. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, we're not talking about specific characters, you know, we have gaps in our knowledge of how that relief effort worked, but, you know, we've got enough to know that it was massive, that, you know, it came from the very top, you know, Titus himself visited the relief effort, which in terms of nonfiction writers, it has been compared to the way that presidents, you know, visited disasters, you know, it's, it's morale boosting as much as being able to do something specific yourself as an emperor or as a president and also to show the officials who are dealing with it look this is important to me I'm keeping an eye on what you're doing you know don't stuff it up um so that's how I perceived of you know the emperor's involvement and you know other aspects so we know from you know Roman historians that that there was a lot of money went into it that you know, former consuls were appointed to oversee the rebuilding, um, that people who died without air in the eruption, the state didn't take their money, that went back into the rebuilding effort. So there was, you know, there was there was a lot going on. There's stuff that we don't know the specifics of that I kind of guessed. So just like Pliny sends out the fleet on a rescue mission, I imagine the fleet being involved in the re rebuilding. I imagine the Roman army being involved, you know, putting up refugee camps um, because, you know, the Roman military encampment was a very famous thing. Um, you know, it, was, it worked well for the army. Presumably they would have had to have done that. We know that lots of people, you know, increasingly archaeological evidence suggests that a lot of people survived. Um, they didn't all die the people of Pompeii and Herculaneum, you know, many did survive. Um, Naples had a whole district named after Herculaneum for hundreds of years, which suggests that, you know, a large concentration of the population went there. And then there are also kind of epigraphs that suggest Pompeian families also stayed in the area that they escaped. Yes, it's, I mean, to give us a glimpse of what rebuilding your life after that disaster would look like. I mean, it, it does make for an incredibly dramatic, you know, last third of the book and, and ending to the series. I mean, Elodie, it's just such an incredible series. I, 
devoured it. I'm going to read it again. I'm oh, going to thank keep you, Kate. <laughs> handing it to anyone who loves. Oh yeah, I love it. I really love it. I think it's such an engrossing, hugely satisfying series. And I, I'm just so grateful that there are very talented authors like you who are giving voice to women specifically from history in the ancient world and giving us a chance to get a glimpse into what their lives might have been like. So on that note, I I have an idea what you might be working on next, but can you tell us what's next for you? What are you writing? So um, my next book is called Boudicca's Daughter. Um, and so it's set, you know, in the decades before the wolf den starts. Um, so, you know, that starts in the mid 70s uh, AD. And obviously this will start in the early 60s AD. And there is one character from the books who has a cameo, and that's Britannica. Um, but she would have been a child then. So, you know, before people who like Britannica get too excited, you know, she is only a child <laughs> in, this, in this time period. So she obviously isn't going to be the lead. Um, but that's, I guess that's how the worlds are interconnected. But yeah, so Boudicca's daughter, the main character is one of her two daughters. And so a bit like... Um, the Temple of Fortuna not being a volcano eruption, uh, a volcano book in the sense of that's the culmination of it. Um, the rebellion is not the culmination of this this book. It happens relatively early on, um, so it, it deals a lot of with the aftermath and not just staying in Roman Britain. You know, because although Boudicca is a real historical figure, as are her daughters, as is Paulidas, you know, Boudicca's kind of nemesis, the Roman general that she fought. We we know nothing really about what happened uh, to the daughters afterwards. So it's it's I guess a bit like Pliny. It's real characters about whom we know a certain amount, but not so much that you can't do a lot of creating yourself. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm enjoying researching that and planning that in the minute. Oh, good. Well, I'm looking forward to it too. I mean, we've covered Boudicca and the Explorers, and I just feel like the ancient world. Uh, provide such incredible fodder. It's like we get these glimpses of women, but there's so many gaps and so much we don't know. And, you know, it's just... And they're so filtered mm. through, you know, all this stuff that's been constructed. You know, you look at Tacitus's um, picture of Boudicca as like this noble, um, savage leader. And then, you know, the warrior queen. And then you look at Cassius Dio, who sees her as a kind of genocidal maniac. So you know, which was she? Was she both? You know, it's, yeah. Well, I will wait on that one uh, with bated breath. Uh, but I will say in the meantime, that <laughs> I'm just, I, this trilogy is incredible. And I hope listeners that you all run out and get the Temple of Fortuna. If you haven't read the other two, it's, you know, the series is complete. So now you can binge the whole thing. And I fully encourage you to do that. So... <laughs> Thank you so much, Elodie, for coming back on the show and talking about women of the ancient world with me. Thank you so much, Kate. It's been an absolute pleasure. The Temple of Fortuna is out now, so go and grab yourself a full set. If you like The Exploress, tell a friend about it, leave a review wherever you listen, become a patron, or shoot me an email telling me what you love about it. You can find show notes for this episode at my website, and you can also find me on Instagram at The Exploress Podcast. <laughs>